So good morning, everyone. Uh, can, first of all, can you all hear me all right? And am I standing? Okay, great. So um, I'm really happy to be here. I arrived Monday night from the Chicago area. Uh, ORCID, and I'm going to tell you all about ORCID today. ORCID is uh, an organization with a, a small team, and we're sort of distributed all around the planet. Uh, but I live in the United States uh, and the, still in the town of Champaign-Urbana. And that is about three hours drive south of Chicago. Although often, uh, I still just tell people I'm from Chicago, although I'm not really from Chicago. So uh, I'm very happy to be here today to talk with you about ORCID. Uh, it's always valuable to me to know who it is I'm talking with. So how many of you are, are students? Okay, don't be shy, don't be shy. Okay, great, very glad to see students. Uh, how many of you are in the library? in some capacity. How many of you are here in the research office? Uh, and what populations did I miss? Anybody? Anybody from? Yes? Oh, okay. Okay, so a research assistant, faculty member, postdoctoral research associate, anyone else? Okay, great. Okay, wonderful. Okay, great. Uh, so, uh, you heard a little bit about my background. Um, I, for many years, worked as a university administrator uh, at the University of Illinois, uh, and I've been with ORCID for about the past year. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to tell you about ORCID, talking a bit about what the initiative is, why I think it's a really exciting thing for you to think about. Uh, and my presentation today is intended for all of you, even though you're coming from this from different perspectives. So I, I will talk about, really, in, my intention is very much that you get a sense of how ORCID it works across the entire research landscape, the entire scholarly communications landscape with um, publishers, universities, uh, research information systems, and so forth, funding agencies, etc. And then talk about then specifically though how it also serves the interests of researchers, which is our main mission. Uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and then go from there. Oh, you're forwarding my slides. Thank you. Okay, great. So the first thing is that um, for up till now, we have um, been trying to connect researchers, scholars with their outputs, um, and we've done so with their names. Uh, but I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. Uh, but the challenge is, the so next slide, is um, that relying on author names is really inadequate. And that's because um, lots of different reasons. The first one is that names may be really common. This, you may say, yes, that's me. Uh, we know that this, this problem exists everywhere. One of the things that I didn't know before I joined ORCID was that it's actually a really, really difficult problem in China. So to just uh, blow your mind a little bit, 1.1 uh, billion people in China share only 129 surnames. So if you are publishing in China, you can be pretty certain that your research will be confused with somebody else. Another Wei Wang, another person whose last name is Chong. Okay. So that's actually a really problem. So next slide. We also have uh, the challenge that your name may be spelled in different ways or transliterated from different languages. And so here is an example of a man from Denmark. 
And, and I actually think this is just the start. I don't think this is all of it. But you can appreciate if people are trying to find his work to discover what he's publishing, they may not find it because it could be uh, expressed in any number of different ways. And I'm not even talking about, you know, I haven't even talked about trying to find somebody who's transliterated from Chinese characters or something else. So these are global examples. Next slide. The other thing, though, and this is something that we also see uh, across all cultures, is um, people who have changed their name, most commonly women, who have changed their name upon marriage. But it also, it can reflect the problem that you may have published under different names. So I'm Rebecca Bryant, but I've published as R.A. Bryant. I've published as Rebecca A. Bryant. Um, maybe when you've published, you had your name misspelled. So even if your name is unique, that may be the problem. So these are all the problems with the landscape that we're dealing with. So next slide. So um, it's also that the landscape is confusing. So next slide. Um, this is a little complex slide. Uh, but I'm going to draw your focus to the top and to the, to the journals, journal articles, which is sort of in red and, and kind of hard to read here. Um, if you're a scholar or a researcher, you're engaging in a lot of different activities. The one we tend to think about the most, and the one that I'll spend the most time talking about today, but certainly want to point out it is not the only output, and that's the journal article. Really, that's the important output in the sciences. That tends to be the thing we're measuring the most. But I have this slide to draw your attention to the fact that that is not the only thing. There are lots of other things depending upon what, um, what your field of research is. If you're a humanist, and that's my background, the monograph is really important, or perhaps book chapters. But if you're a biomedical scientist, it may be protein structures if you're, or data sets. If you're a physicist, or astrophysicist, it's going to really be large data sets. And there's increasing pressure from federal agencies in countries around the world to be sharing that data in as well as the publications themselves. Another thing that's listed on here is reviewer service. This is something that scholars do throughout their career, that they participate in the peer review process, um, but they get very little recognition for this process. And I'm going to talk back to this. So one of the things that we're thinking about at ORCID is that we're talking about publications, we're talking about journal articles, but we're wanting to really be very thoughtful and to talk about them broadly, and that's why I will use the term works, because we're using the term works to talk about all of those scholarly outputs and contributions that people are making throughout their career. Okay. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about ORCID. I have two sides here. On your left is some information about ORCID, the organization. And on your right, I'll talk a little bit more about ORCID, the identifier. We use the same name to refer to both. It means it's really the same thing, but it can be confusing because of that. So uh, ORCID, again, stands for the Open Researcher and Contributor ID. As an organization, we are a nonprofit non-proprietary organization. And we work um, across all national boundaries and all disciplinary boundaries. Uh, we, as a nonprofit organization, our goal is not to uh, make a lot of money. Our goal is to make enough money that we can continue to sustain ourselves and provide the research community with the service that we provide. Uh, we do that through fees, um, annual fees, membership charges, that are, are requested of organizations that use our API. 
So uh, I'll talk a little bit about the API in a minute, uh, which stands for Application Programming Interface. Um, so I'll, I'll double back and talk a little bit about that, but, and I'll talk more about who our members are. The ORCID ID itself is a 16-digit identifier. It's unique, it's persistent, and it stays with the researcher throughout their career. The bottom of the screen you can see is my 16-digit ORCID ID. It's represented as a URI, so it's not just sort of the freestanding 16 digits because then we don't know what it refers to. It should be expressed as orchid.org slash then your 16-digit number. And the beauty of, of demonstrating it that way or, or, or showing it that way, especially if it's on a web page, is that then you can click on it, hyperlink, and it will resolve to your ORCID page. Uh, other things that I think are really important about the ORCID identifier it is absolutely free to researchers. Our model is, is that member organizations pay a fee to use the API to take advantage of the ways that we can now technologically ch exchange information between siloed systems. But it is always free to researchers. It's a researcher-driven initiative. And researchers always control the privacy of their record at the item level. We understand and respect that there may be works that you don't want to make public. And there are lots of very good reasons that researchers may have for that. Uh, although, I think we also all appreciate that most of the time, your greatest advantage is from having all of your works made public. And that's why the default is for, for those works to be public when people add them. And I'll talk about how people do that. The goal is for this ID not just to be something that you get and then exist sort of in a vacuum. The goal is for, next slide please, is for you to claim the ORCID ID and then also for that member community to start using it in all of their systems. So if you're submitting a journal article, you include your name, your name becomes part of that publication. It's a part of the metadata. What we are doing is having, in addition to your name, you have a unique identifier that better distinguishes you from all other people. That's a part of the metadata for that publication, for your grants, for all of the other things. And the goal is, and for all of these different siloed systems, they all begin using the ORCID identifier. We begin collecting at the point that you submit a grant or you submit a publication. It can flow through the system. But also, because we use APIs, uh, that information can be exchanged more easily between systems. Because it's possible to be exchanged, that means we can spend less time collecting the same information over and over and over as researchers, also as institutions, and we can share that information much more seamlessly, saving us time, saving us energy, and saving us money. So let me tell you, I'll talk a little bit about APIs. This is probably something some of you are familiar with. It probably may be new. Um, how many of you use Facebook? Okay, okay, so a lot of you. How many of you use Google? Uh, or let me say Gmail or, or Google Plus or something like that. Okay, so have you ever seen where you've been using an application that says, do you want to log in with your Google or your Facebook? Okay, have you ever done that? Yeah, okay, you've used an API because that is a system that um, using an OAuth sort of uh, programming interface allows you to actually exchange information between systems, to allow two different systems to talk with your permission as a user. So you actually already have a high familiarity with this if you haven't actually heard the term before. And if you're a technical person, then you're saying that was probably a very high level description. Um, but because we 
partner with member organizations, and because we're an open, uh, non-proprietary institution, we will partner with any member of the community, proprietary, not-for-profit, open. Everyone is welcome. It's very important to us, and the only way this initiative will be successful is if we all use it, and if we are open to everyone using it. We have to all use it. So next slide, please. So ORCID is a pretty young initiative. We launched the uh, registry of ORCID identifiers, uh, and people could begin claiming and registering for their own ORCID ID in October of 2012. So a little more than 18 months has passed. During that time, three quarters of a million people from every country on the planet have claimed an ORCID identifier. Also during that time, 140 uh, organizations have come forward and have joined us as member organizations that are paying an annual fee and that are using the API and embedding into their systems. And I'm going to talk some more about examples there. Uh, what you can see um, from our growth uh, from the chart on the left is uh, in the lighter blue is that you can see that that's the largest number of people who are coming and are, are registering for an ORCID ID. What that really means, and I think I have there, it says trusted party. That really means that these are people who are seeing ORCID because they're submitting a um, manuscript to a journal and they're being requested to include their ORCID ID in that. Or maybe they're submitting a grant to a funding organization that's asking for or possibly requiring an ORCID ID for grant submission and, and they're going there. So people are really learning about ORCID and are engaging with us for the first time primarily through the API, through, through other organizations that are already using ORCID. Smaller percentage, that, that blue, the darker blue that's above it, are people who may be like you today because you can just go to orca.org. You can do that during my presentation if you have uh, a device and internet access and it will take you about 30 seconds to, to get your ORCID ID. So there's people who are just doing that independently. That's how I got my ORCID ID. And then that small orange sliver that you see sort of bump up March of this year are organizations, universities primarily, that are partnering with us to uh, use the API to actually create ORCID IDs on behalf of their faculty or their grad students or sometimes both. That's something that's possible through the API, although each user still has to claim the record. And we saw a big bump in March when Texas A&M University in the United States created ORCID identifiers for its 10,000 graduate students. Um, we've also seen that happening at other institutions in Europe, primarily in Spain, in Hong Kong, and others in the United States. Um, other things to point out here is that we have representation from the entire research community. About 40% of the organizations that are members today are uh, universities, research institutes, medical centers. About 25% are publishers, so there's sometimes this myth that ORCID is a publishing initiative. Not so. I actually expect, because there are so many universities, and universities have so much to gain, and that's very much actually where the researchers, scholars, grad students are living, um, we expect that engagement and that percentage to increase uh, quite a bit. Um, but also we have funding organizations, about 7%. That number's probably going to stay pretty steady because there just aren't as many of them. But also sort of repositories and other um, professional societies as well. Uh, last thing is on the bottom, about half of our member organizations are from the Americas, and about 
35% are from Europe, Middle East, and here in Africa. Most of that is from member organizations in Europe. And then about 15% is from Asia. I expect that Asia number in particular to grow. Um, not surprisingly, because um, as I described earlier, um, some of the problems with names in Asia are the most, are, are particularly acute. Okay, so um, that's a bit about ORCID. I, I'm interspersing here in my presentation uh, both some uh, sort of um, broad descriptions of what ORCID is, but also <coughs> have here some specific things that, I, what, that are advice for researchers specifically. This advice also may be useful for those of you also who are librarians, who will find yourselves advising people on, on their ORCID ID. So the next thing is that when you register for your ID, you have the opportunity to create your ORCID record. This is a very well filled out ORCID record for Todd Vision, who's a faculty member in the United States at the University of North Carolina. Uh, and what, what you can see is that circled there at the top, there is his 16-digit number displayed. Uh, and you can see that he's included his affiliations. He's included his uh, PhD, his educational background. He's also included his current employment. If we were to scroll down on this page, you would also see that all of his, his research works, and that includes for him both publications and data sets, are also included in his ORCID record. And the final thing is on the left, you can see that he actually has linked to other identifiers. That's, he's not just imported, he's actually linked. These systems are actually connected and able to talk uh, both in the past and actually in the future. So he's linked to other identifiers such as the researcher ID identifier, which is available through um, Thomson Reuters within Web of Science, also Scopus identifiers, and et cetera. Okay. So I encourage you to go to orchid.org. All you need to create an orchid identifier is first, well, actually, I say first and last name, but we actually, we just need your name. And I, for, for some people, actually, they only have one name, and, and you can do that. So your name, your email address, and a secure password. We, ORCID does not, and very intentionally, does not collect a lot of private information. Okay, that's what we collect. Uh, and that's what you need to create a record. And so 30 seconds, boom, you have your own unique number. You will be receive uh, an email address that you have to verify. You actually, or an email message, you will not um, receive your ORCID ID and it won't be validated until you've actually responded to that message. And that's mostly to make sure that we have a correct email address for you. Okay. Um, and then um, you have then the opportunity when you create that record to to say, here is the default I want for anything new to my record, for how I want it to be displayed to the world. I can make everything public, I can make everything private, or I can choose an intermediate sort of view where um, everything is, is dark, but I still am willing to share it with those organizations who are using the API and who I'm trusting to share information with. That might be my university, that might be the Scopus database, and we'll, you'll get a better sense of what those are. The default is public because we people want uh, the greatest sort of exposure for their work, there's the greatest benefit. But even if your default for all of your works is public, you can choose at the item level that you want something to be private or that you want something to be just trusted party. Okay, next slide. So the next thing, and then I'll talk a little bit more about why this is really important. We encourage you to add additional email addresses. That way you can log in with any email address 
and just leave them there. I think you know I don't think there's any reason to have to delete them, but include them, and that's that's useful um, because then you can log in with any of them. You don't have to remember which one you used to set it up. Uh, but also we encourage you uh, to include variants of your names. So as I said earlier, I've published as Rebecca Bryant, R. A. Bryant, Rebecca Ann Bryant. Um, all those variants of my name are sort of here, include them. Because I'm going to talk in a minute about how you can link to previous publications through searching in different databases. Um, but you can only discover those works if it knows to look for your name. It's looking for your name. So if it's not looking for the different names you've published under, then it may not find those works and you may actually be disappointed. So go ahead and make this a first step. Okay, next slide. And then while you're there, also I encourage you to go ahead and add your education and affiliation information, your ad education and employment. As we move over time, we're expecting more and more institutions to actually use the API to provide a validation of this information. I think the community is very interested in this. So in that, an example could be that the University of Johannesburg could use this to indicate that um, you are currently a faculty member, or you've been a faculty member for these dates, or that you're currently a postgraduate student, et cetera. Okay. So those are all things that can be communicated through the API. So let me go, come back here and talk a little bit about how organizations are using ORCID. Uh, and I'm going to talk about four different groups of um, organizations. And I realize these quotes are pretty impossible for you to read. Um, I'm going to talk first about research funders and how they're using ORCID, and then follow up with publishers. Um, talk briefly about what I think are extraordinarily exciting things for scholarly societies, professional societies, and then conclude with talking about how the university community is also using ORCID. Okay, so within the funding community, um, funders, funding agencies, um, are uh, encouraging the adoption of ORCID identifiers. So I have a couple, uh, three different organizations that are, are, that are represented here. One is the National Institutes of Health, one is the Wellcome Trust in the UK, K, uh, the National Institutes of Health is in the United States, and then the third one is actually the European Commission. So. When I learned about ORCID, I was still a graduate dean at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And um, I first heard about ORCID because I was watching a webinar of this thing that the National Institutes of Health was doing on um, preparation of scientists, biomedical workforce. It's called the Biomedical Workforce Task Force. You see that represented here. Uh, and not surprisingly to me, um, one of the things that emerged from that task force, which was trying to say, are we actually preparing people for the careers they're going into? Where are they going? And then they realized, we don't know, because we don't really know where they're going. We can't track them. They, their names are all different. They're going all over the planet. We don't know. So actually, one of the core things that came out of the Biomedical Workforce Task Force and recommendation of the National Institutes of Health was we need unique identifiers that are global because uh, that are global and mobile, because our scholars are global and mobile, and that will follow them throughout their career. This will help us have better outcomes tracking. This will help us have information that actually informs us about where people are going. And then we, as an agency, can actually make better decisions about are we really preparing people in the way that we, we need to. Because we don't really know what they need, because we don't really know where they're going. 
So that's coming from the United States. Um, the European Commission has also made a similar recommendation for the adoption of ORCID identifiers. Next slide. And so within the funding community, you have a number of different organizations that are already ORCID members. So everyone here is actually an ORCID member organization. Uh, the ones sort of on the top are, are United States institutions. So you have the NIH. You also have the Department of Energy uh, and the Federal Food and Drug Administration. Um, NIH and DOE are both now uh, uh, have incorporated ORCID into one or more of their systems. DOE is actually requesting it for grant submission. Uh, NIH is requesting it as a part of a biosketch that's a part of the, the um, grant submission process. Uh, similarly, though, the large funders in other parts of the world, including the Wellcome Trust, which is asking for it as a part of grant submission. The organizations that are highlighted here in green are funding organizations that have made the additional step of not just requesting it, but of requiring it for grant submission. And this is something that I think we will be seeing more of from the funding community. Those include a small funder that's very specific for research supporting autism research, uh, and um, that's called Autism Speaks. They're requiring it for grant submission. The largest funder in Portugal, called FCT, which I think would basically be the equivalent of NRF here in South Africa, is requiring it for all of their researchers. So we've, we have a, a great many uh, Portuguese researchers who now have their ORCID identifiers. Uh, and then the other group that is in the process of implementing but has made the policy decision is also the Swiss, Swiss, Swedish Research Foundation. Next slide. Um, so talking about publishers, um, the publishing community has been very supportive of ORCID from the beginning. What's really exciting about ORCID and publishing is that we have the opportunity, like in grant submission, to disambiguate uh, information from the point we first receive it within the publishing workflow. So at the point that you as a corresponding author submit a publication, you are being asked in thousands of manuscript submission systems to include your ORCID identifier. And that's where most of the people who actually are finding out about us. Uh, and, but I think part of my message today is if you're being asked for it, it is in your best interest to include it because that ORCID identifier is going to stay as a part of the metadata throughout, your pro throughout the history of that publication. And as you can see from these two examples here, it's flowing through the workflow and actually is being published in papers, both digitally and in print, uh, as part of that. And we're going to see more and more and more of that. Because your name, if your name is John Smith or Wei Wong, or very often abbreviated as J. Smith or W. Wong, <laughs> how do you know which one it is? The ORCID identifier is only the way, only way we're going to know who you are. But the other thing that's really exciting is that that um, ORCID ID then flows through the whole process at the point that, and the librarians will know what I'm talking about here, is that at the point that the digital object identifier or DOI is minted, that is a unique identifier for that work, that also uh, means that that ORCID ID is flowing into other systems where you as scholars are going to be able to search for it. So if you were to go into Scopus now, I believe they have actually just implemented in the last week or two that you can actually now do a search by an ORCID ID. You can do so through a search through Web of Science with an ORCID ID. So this is actually going to transform how we actually do searches of the literature. 
So this is increasingly something that you need to know as a scholar and that we need to be training the new generation of scholars about, about how important this is. Um, the other thing that's possible but that we aren't yet doing, but that we expect, is that because this information flows through the workflow and at least in, in Western countries, uh, uh, receives a DOI for journal publications through an organization called Crossref. We have linkages with Crossref. So one of the things that we're discussing how to do this year is how to have that information flow back with the permission of the researcher automatically to populate their record so that nobody had to type that information in. Their ORCID identifier is being automatically updated without any action from them, which is a wonderful benefit for them because they're not having to spend time thinking about it. Uh, but it's also really valuable to institutions, to funding agencies, to all of us, because then we can have much more confidence that the information is up to date. It saves all of us time. Next slide. Uh, okay, that says in red, thousands of journals are including ORCID. So here's a list of some of the publishers, um, some very large publishers who support scores of journals, Elsevier, Wiley, Nature, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, in the United States, and then publishers that, that are also have very broad outputs, including the humanities like Oxford and Cambridge University Presses. And so you can see here sort of this example of nature. That's where you know, they're requesting, can you include your ORCID ID in the, the point of manuscript submission for, any, for nature publishing? Okay, next. So you're saying, great, okay, I'll use my ORCID ID when I'm submitting new manuscripts. But you know, I'm 40 years old, I've had a career, I've published, I got all this stuff out there. It doesn't have an ORCID identifier. So, but I have good news because you can actually go and include your ORCID ID in many of the systems. Now, the challenge is because we didn't attach the ORCID ID at the point that it was created or published, uh, it's in lots of different systems without it which means you need to touch lots of different systems so that you're, you're increasing the discoverability of your work in all of those different systems. Okay, so, but that's actually really easy. So if you go to your ORCID record, you can actually sort of scroll down on the page and you're gonna see a link that says works, or you can see it's gonna say works, and it's gonna invite you to link works. Uh, and when you click on link works, um, you're gonna see a list, and I've got, actually, can you forward on a couple slides? And, uh, no, but the other way. More, more, more. There, that's the one I want. You're going to get a screen that looks like this. And you're going to see a number of organizations, a number of databases that have linkages with ORCID. So you can go there and actually you can link your ORCID identifier. And um, so you can like, and if you scroll down the list, you'll see Scopus. Um, as well. Um, so, but for researcher ID, which is sort of a unique identifier, another unique identifier, but that is specific only to Web of Science, um, you can click through, agree, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, happy. I want to import and connect my works between these systems, uh, and then once you do that, you're going to have a list of possible publications of yours based upon the names that you've indicated in the ORCID in your ORCID record. You then go and you choose, check mark which ones are mine, I want to add this to my record. So you are helping out the folks at Thomson Reuters Web of Science by saying, yes, these are mine. You are disambiguating that record for them. And that's how then you can go and search by your ORCID ID in Web of Science and find your works there because you've actually cleaned up their data there. 
but simultaneously you didn't have to enter any of that information in your ORCID record. It's imported and will appear there. So for you as a researcher, I encourage you to do this with virtually anything that's listed on this list. Um, some of them get pretty specific, like the Australian National Data Service. Okay, I'm guessing that's probably not relevant to almost anybody here. Uh, but I would encourage you to look at Crossref. Most people, most scholars have no, don't know what Crossref is, and, and by and large there's really no reason for you to. But if you've published anything that's appeared digitally in the last decade or so, it's probably had, um, it's probably been processed through Crossref, and they're the folks who assign it a DOI. You probably have stuff there, and there's actually going to be a lot of value for you doing that. One of the things, though, that I will say we, um, you may notice, especially if you've um, published quite a bit, is that when you link to multiple systems, those, those records are going to come into your ORCID uh, account. And what you might see is that it may appear multiple times. And then you're going to say, oh, this is a duplicate. I don't want this to appear three times. And what I'll say to you is this is actually not a duplicate. It's a linkage with three different systems. Um, and what we're working to do in the next quarter is to find a way to best group those works together. If they have the same DOI, we know it's the same, uh, it's really the same record, but it's actually a different linkage. And so what we're working is to group them together, but then also to represent in some way what the organization was that's saying this is yours. Where did it come from? And then increasingly, that may also include universities and others. So I think that that's also going to add value. Can you go back one slide? Oh, okay, and one other thing. Oh, with publications. Uh, I mentioned reviewer service earlier. So if you've been a reviewer in the peer review process, whether it's for publications or funding, you know, for grants, agencies, et cetera, uh, it's um, probably blind, not always, but often, or perhaps even frequent, most often. Uh, but also because of that and because of just some challenges with sharing information, you basically have gotten no credit for that. Maybe there's some announcement with a list of people who were reviewers in a December issue of a print journal, but really not much acknowledgement of that. Um, but technology and a unique identifier actually mean that we can actually look at things a little bit differently. There's some exciting opportunities here. So we have a working group um, that includes people from different parts of the communities, funders, um, publishers and so forth, who are actually examining this process. And because we have an API, how can publishers and funders actually uh, indicate and give credit to the researchers who are doing this review? So maybe there's something that comes back to your record that says, in uh, 2014, I was a reviewer for this journal. Of course, we wouldn't include the specifics. This is often still blind review. So it, you know, there's anonymity about exactly what journal article you reviewed or whether it was accepted or not. Uh, but there would be include something from the American Chemical Society or the National Institutes of Health or NRF that you were a reviewer and that you provided that service. Uh, I think this is actually really kind of exciting and transformative. So we will um, probably have a report in the next four to six weeks, depending upon what the recommendation of that group is, then we're going to begin implementing that. So that's something that we'll, I'm hoping we'll see in the next few months. It sort of depends upon what the recommendation is uh, and how we need to solve that problem technically. So next slide. Uh, next slide. Next slide. 
Okay, so uh, you've linked your works, but in the process of linking your works, you said that there's some stuff here that's not there. Uh, the book that I published or the book chapter. And there's going to be a lot of things that probably aren't there. We have this list of search and link wizards that you can use. Those are not the only ones that are going to exist. There are more that are always in development. Uh, and there may not always be the ones that are the ones you really need for your discipline. Uh, again, my background's in the humanities. Um, and uh, you, we don't have a linkage yet with WorldCat. Um, that's something, you know, OCLC is on our board of directors. I know that that's something they're very interested in. I'm very hopeful that's something that will be seen in the near term. So, um, but in the meantime, you can add your works manually and indicate them there. So that's something we encourage you to do. Next slide. Okay, so that's a little bit about publishing and what researchers can do. Uh, a quick note about professional societies. Professional societies have a lot of the same problems that funding organizations or universities or publishers have, is that we have, used, we have lots of different processes and we have lots of different systems. But we don't always know if we're talking about the same person between the different systems. And I'm sure that never happens here at the University of Johannesburg. But um, they are very interested in being able to use the ORCID identifier not only in their publishing systems, which many large professional societies have a publishing arm, but also using it to have better information about who their members are, to being able to use it for conference registration, to use it for abstract submission in conferences, and then also to be able to be better exchange information within their own systems and to know that they're talking about the same person. Because you can appreciate even, you know, they're trying to find reviewers for a journal article. They have a potential reviewer whose name is John J. Smith, but the article that, or the submission that needs to be reviewed is by Jay Smith. Uh, okay, how do you manage, how do we know? And there's a lot of conflict, um, uh, management of conflict of interest uh, issues that sort of need to be addressed there. But having a unique identifier um, well actually can, can help simplify a lot of these processes. So we're seeing organizations like the American Geophysical Union, the Society for Neuroscience, IEEE, and in the Humanities and Modern Language Association that are moving forward to include the ORCID identifier within membership renewal uh, and then within other systems. The Society for Neuroscience, which has about 40,000 members worldwide, very global organization for neuroscientists and interdisciplinary brain researchers, uh, is gonna, probably going to be the first to roll out in August. And so that, I think, is a very exciting partnership and I think will also really increase the way that people are learning about ORCID. <coughs> Next slide. And then uh, about universities. So universities are including in a lot of different systems. Uh, they're including into researcher information systems that are sort of behind the scenes to some extent, uh, but that are very important for research organizations to understand what uh, their researchers are doing, what their outputs are, what their productivity looks like, where are they getting grants from, and so much more. We're seeing incorporation into those systems. We're also seeing incorporation into um, campus uh, institutional repositories where faculty and students may be archiving a lot of their work. Um, for me, one of the things that's kind of exciting is electronic theses and dissertations. I'll give you a little bit more about information about that. Sometimes they're crosswalking also to a campus unique identifier. You probably have a unique identifier for students and faculty on your campus. 
but we're seeing organizations that are actually tying those and even displaying them within the, the ORCID ID within the campus directory. And then again, also indicating through the API, organizations um, can, if it makes sense that their institution, help to encourage the adoption by their faculty and students by actually creating the records for them. Next slide. So a little bit about some of the universities that are using ORCID. Uh, on the left, I have a lot of US institutions. Um, and there are, uh, frankly, there are a lot of US institutions. But you can see within that list, we have some Ivy League institutions like Harvard, which is included uh, into its faculty HR system. Um, but also a, a lot of uh, very large publicly, publicly funded institutions like the uh, Texas A&M, or University of Colorado or University of Texas. Uh, worldwide, we've seen a lot of interest in adoption uh, across Europe, Hong Kong, Taiwan from universities, uh, also increasingly from Australia, like the University of Sydney. Uh, next slide, please. Um, we've had a couple of uh, grant-funded projects that have really helped to demonstrate how universities are using ORCID. The one in the United States, which is just will soon be wrapping up, was supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. And through that, we were able to fund many grants to nine institutions. And what they did was that they um, incorporated ORCID into a number of different systems. And a lot of actually what they were trying to do was not just pilot it in their system, but also to make updates to the source code for the open system they were using, like a DSpace repository or like Hydra plugins for Fedora or other types of repository tools. Um, so that means that not only have they integrated into the, the institutional repository at the University of Missouri, but that other institutions that use DSpace, so librarians probably know what I'm talking about, um, that use DSpace can then also find that a lot of that legwork is done and it should be pretty easy to integrate. Um, also done for research for open, uh, openly, um, pub, open source um, researcher information systems uh, like Vivo that are being used around the world. Uh, and then also doing things like integrating into electronic theses and dissertations. Uh, we have another project that just kicked off in May last month in the UK, and that's funded by JISC and ARMA. And similar kinds of use cases, we're seeing them integrating into researcher information systems, usually called CRIS systems, current research and information systems in, in Europe. Um, but also integrating into things um, like ePrints, so another repository tool, uh, also into ETDs, but then also collaborating with uh, in the publishing community. And University of Oxford is collaborating with OUP, Oxford University Press, not CUP. So that's a typo. Next slide. Here's just a kind of an interesting case study because it uses lots of different things. So Texas A&M University uh, used the API to create ORCID IDs for all of its grad students. Very large graduate population there. Uh, but one of the things they're also doing is they're actually really requiring the, uh, that ORCID identifier as uh, a condition, something that you must include as part of your dissertation deposit. You have to include your name. You have, need to include your ORCID identifier. So they did this for their May graduation period that just, just ended. Uh, and then part of what the next step is, is they can use the API to actually uh, share that information back 
to those students' ORCID IDs so that their dissertation actually appears in their ORCID record. So it's actually a really exciting way about how universities basically act as publishers, but they can use that to share that information. Um, the other thing that's also, I think, of a lot of interest, and you can go to the next slide, is that um, Texas A&M is actually very interested in this for some of the same reasons that the U.S. National Institutes of Health is very interested, is that um, they have a difficulty knowing where their graduates go. They have a very large international student population. They have a lot of scientists going to postdocs. The population's very mobile, uh, and there's a lot of increased interest from the Texas government, from the U.S. government, funding agencies. Um, and from the institution itself to have a better sense of are we preparing people for the careers they're really having. So ORCID uh, is, is a tool that can help them better understand where people are going uh, with less effort. So they want to make sure that everybody has an ORCID ID before they leave their institution and most importantly that they know what it is. So um, ORCID, if you're a member organization, and I'll talk about membership here in a minute, um, if you're a member organization, depending upon your level of membership, you can get either biannual or monthly updates of information for people who are your users, uh, or for, in, in, for anybody's public, any public data as well. Uh, but because we're an open organization, because we want to work with all members of the community, whether they're members or not, we also release an annual public data file. And that means that any information that researchers have made public through their indication of their privacy settings, uh, we release in this file. It's available to the community. We don't sell it. We make it available. That information is there and available for institutions to use, to track outcomes. I actually think over time and as the data becomes richer and richer, it's also going to be of interest potentially for educational and social science researchers. So next slide. So a little bit more for researchers. Um, your ORCID ID is your identity. I strongly recommend those of you who are early in your career to get an ORCID ID and really at the point that you are starting to produce knowledge, at the point that you're putting something in a campus repository, might be could be an undergraduate honors thesis, it could be your first publication, it could be your dissertation. But those are things you are producing knowledge in, and you should have an ORCID ID and ideally those things are linked together. Uh, but also very importantly, you should be using the ORCID ID at every opportunity that you have to include it, to attach it to a record, because then that's going to be connected with <coughs> you uh, throughout your career. So use it within grant applications. Use it when you submit manuscripts. Next slide. Next slide. Uh, and then I haven't talked much about this, but you can also use it to link to your data sets. In the United States, in Europe, uh, <coughs> and I also saw an announcement yesterday, actually just also very much in other parts of the world, including China, there are national uh, guidelines or mandates that both publications, but increasingly data from publicly funded research be made available within a uh, certain horizon of time. And so there's increasing interest within the community for archival of this research, but also to improve discoverability and reusability of this, this research. 
And that's, so it's not, it's more than the publications. It's also about the importance of the data. And that's, ORCID takes a really broad view about what works are. So in addition to connecting your publications to ORCID, you can also connect, make connections with your data sets. So we have interfaces that you can see in the search and link wizards with data site. We actually also have a couple that, that you can access not directly from our site, but from their site. And one of them is a tool called Figshare. Um, Figshare is a proprietary product. It has, uh, it's a kind of a data repository tool. It's, it's free to use and depending upon how much storage you need. But what's also exciting is that it also, like DataSite, will um, uh, mint a DOI for your data set. So it has a persistent identifier that can be part of your citation of that. And I think we will see increasing amounts of this. So these are things that are also part of the things that you can link. So it's more than just your publications, you can also link your data. Um, you also can link your grants. Uh, there's also another search and link wizard that's available called, it's called the Uber wizard. It's because it's provided called by a company called Uber Research. And they provide a list of, um, it's a database, of grants that have been received at this point primarily by a U.S. and European and some Canadian funding organizations. They are always looking to increase what's in their database. So I don't know that at this time they have anything from South Africa, but I know they would be very interested in having that information. But if you've had grant funding or the PI on a grant for something from an agent from another agency, you actually can connect and include that also within your ORCID record. I think we'll continue to see these opportunities grow. Next. Also strongly encourage you to think about your ORCID as part of your scholarly identity. It should be included on your business cards, on your email signature, put it on the top of your CV, include it on your website. And this is how people will know that who you are from all other people who might look like you or have a similar name. And that way you can be assured that people can discover you. Um, frankly, I think that this is actually um, perhaps most critical for people who are early in their careers and are actually on the job market. I think that that's actually a really important part of your identity at that point. But that's not the only time. I think it's really important. So you'll see more of this. 